as we've gone through 1 Corinthians 13 at the pace of, you know, well, it's too good to, you know, it's like a good meal that you'd feel criminal to sort of not slow down for. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And because the chapter isn't very long, we might as well read the entire thing and prayerfully that will bring back some pretty precious memories for um, some of you or all of us here as we kind of consider what the Lord has told us since we began this beautiful journey in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself nor is puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth, or with the truth, literally. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And then we get to our text tonight. Love never fails. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, and when I became a man, I put away childish things. And we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And if you look at the first verse of the next chapter, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Understand here that it isn't like Greek's giving you a great amount of punctuation and such. And there isn't chapter markings when Paul was writing this to the Corinthians. The conclusion of all of this is to pursue this, to chase after it like it was, like you were in love with it. Like it was your greatest treasure, in essence. Or like a criminal that you were responsible for catching. But I like to think of it more in the positive light here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we want to commit this time to you. We recognize, Lord, in this room, it's the coming summer. Lots of challenges and things come with that busyness. And Lord, I pray today that what you want 
what you want us to understand, we will understand, that we'll get it tonight. Lord, I pray that <clears throat> your word would so penetrate our hearts, so radically move in us, Lord, that we would really be overwhelmed with your goodness. That we would find ourselves in that place, Lord, where all we could do is say thank you. And Lord, bring us to the cross. Bring us to the empty tomb. Transform us. Make us the kind of people you ordain. I know it's not complicated. The issue isn't how complicated it is. The issue is whether we're willing to apply it. And you've told us, Lord, that the man who builds his house on a rock is not the man who just understands your truth, but the man who acts upon it. You didn't promise us, blessed is he who knows the truth, but he who does it. So may we inculcate your truth into our hearts in such a way that action will be birthed, change will be done. We will find ourselves all the better, and the world around us all the better because of it. So we commit this to you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to overflowing and do through me what I cannot humanly do. Speak to every one of our hearts now. Speak fluent us that we would be transformed and more, all the more ready for what you call us to. Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. In 1 Corinthians, there has been, of course, this concern for a church that has been, in essence, the whole church seems to have backslidden. Now, maybe for you, some of you here were probably raised on the dark side of the tracks. If you were to backslide, everybody would know it. We're aware of that. I'm one of those people. But there are some of you that were raised being a fairly dutiful, good, decent person in essence. Still not good enough. Because God demands perfection. And then offers his perfection to anyone who is willing to receive it as a gift. That's the fun of this. He hasn't asked us to earn Grace is never reliant on the deservedness of the recipient, but on the kindness of the giver. And for some of you, if you were to backslide, it would, you wouldn't know it. I mean, well, many around you wouldn't know it. You'd probably still do the same things. And you could be backslidden and still go to church and read your Bibles and do all that. There was a whole church that was like that, apparently. The Church of Ephesus, if you remember, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1, starts with that. Jesus very concerned about the church because he tells them that they are good with smelling out a phony. Oh, they know the truth. And some guy that sets up shop and looks good on the outside but isn't, they can pull him out, man. They can smell a rat. But Jesus says, but you've left your first love. You're so busy trying to be right that you're dead right. Jesus is very concerned, first and foremost. Nothing drives him more than your relationship with him. Mine too. That's what he wants. Jesus died on the cross, not to send you to heaven. He died on the cross to be with you. 
Every moment he had to sin and chose not to was so that he could redeem you and me too. Every choice he made was with you and me in mind. He even tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy set before him was you, beloved. That's what kept him on the cross, because he knew he would get you. That's the beauty of it. But what happens when a church backslides? What does that look like? Well, it's quite simple. For any one of us, it's actually the same. I mean, the sum is just made up of its parts. Every day that we live surrendered to Christ, we should become more like him. A little less selfish, a little more selfless. A little less craving the things of the world and a little bit more clear on eternity. That's kind of how that works. A front walker then would be somebody who becomes more like Jesus. A backslider would be someone who becomes more like the world they came from. It's that simple. This church came from a place like Amsterdam, like Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. To call someone a Corinthian would be a slam on them. It would be calling them someone with no morals, no scruples. Now, I don't know when you think of a place, what place you think of when you think of a place where the only standard is sin. The challenge is to sin more than others, out drink, out sex, out whatever. But that was the idea of Corinth, like Vegas would be today for many. Like Amsterdam would be for some others. So to call someone a Corinth, and this would be, by the way, even people like philosophers like Aristotle or Socrates or poets like Homer would speak of such a Corinthian. You would expect that to be a person that would be digging in your pocket and you wouldn't trust them with your little sister. That's the idea. And that's where they came from. They came from a very selfish, self-driven. And you understand, sin is all about you. It's not about a crowd. It's not about a mass. It's all about you. It isolates you, pulls you away, and then says, now, how do you want to serve you? How do you want to please you? That's the idea here. So understand when a church starts to recede back to where it came from, this particular church, what it's going to look like would be any church, and that's really, really, really selfish. Self-driven, self-elevating, self-desirous, self-striving, self-made. That's the idea. It's all about you, baby. That's the idea. So in this case, there was, in the community they came from, there was a great deal of tolerance for sexual promiscuity. And so as a result of that, so this church then became proud of their tolerance. That was a sign, by the way, a symptom that the doctor, Paul, if you will, is looking at the church with his stethoscope trying to figure out exactly what's wrong with it, and that's one of the symptoms. They are big on their sexual tolerance. What's really simple, you just walk away from Scripture, and then you're going to make it up as you go along. And if you're going to walk away from Scripture, chances are you're going to try to be a whole lot more politically correct. You're probably aware of the fact that Scripture has never been politically correct. People go, oh, well, we need to change parts of it because it doesn't agree with the times. <laughs> it should have been in the times when it was written. It didn't agree with it then either. 
They were also divided by categories. They decided that there were outward things that identified them. And that was part of what happened. And so people were arguing over who they listened to, what church they went to, what denomination. That was kind of the idea. They were more identified by that than they were by Jesus. And they were suing each other. Do you know scripturally it is actually unscriptural for a Christian to sue another? No. Paul looked at all these things and he says, well, what's clear is you guys are carnal. You guys just look like unbelievers collected together, ironically enough, in the church where you're supposed to be looking more like heaven than hell. And nestled right in the middle of all of this is the church service. And if you realize, chapters 10 through 14 really focus on a lot of the things that are going on in the church. The way that they're having communion, which apparently they seem to serve wine with an alcohol content because people were getting wasted. They were, but see, understand, it wasn't just that, because they also served food, and the food, some people glutted themselves. In other words, they ate so much that they had to unbutton their top button. Well, in that case, they had to loosen their sash. And, and then other people went hungry. So imagine, if you would, that we were going to say, we're going to have communion. I want us all to come somberly and seriously to the, to the table of the Lord. And it tells us that, that we're to do some self in, self-inspection some introspection as we do so. But instead, what happens is the moment the food comes out and the moment that the cup comes out, everybody's diving for it to get drunk. And everyone's diving. People are, and they're just shoving their faces with stuff. Could you imagine? And then we go, oh, hey, check out our church. Now, we joke about being Calorie Chapel, but we're never going to be that. Because that's, what's, that's messed up. You know what it is? It's me first. It's me first. It's me first. Then you add in spiritual gifts. And you know what it was? Me first, and it's me first, and me first. Now understand, that's the whole idea of those first handful of verses in chapter 13, isn't it? See, understand, all love is, is me last. That's all it is. Is me last, you first. God first, you first, me last. I get to the back of the queue. That's what real love is. Is laying down my life for another's sake. That's all it is. And I can't lay down the life, my life, and put me first. That's the problem. And that's why he says, look it, it doesn't matter how much you talk or what you say. If it's still me first, it's not going to account for anything. No matter what kind of great monumental things and miraculous things that seem to have come from you, God will still do crazy things through you anyways because he still wants people saved. Ironically, he will use you in spite of you for other people to get saved because he still puts them first. The problem is you don't get the credit for it. It would be like we're playing a game of football and David doesn't realize it, but he's so selfish at the time. And this is completely hypothetical because David's not like this. But, but he's just running around the field and all he's trying to do is he's going, and he's just standing into the, he's looking at the crowd. He's going, check me out. I'm awesome. Look at me. Yeah, and he's like, he's doing a little dance. He's just trying to get all the attention and like the TV cameras are there and they're trying to get at him. He's like, check me out. I'm awesome. I'm awesome. And while that's happening, someone kicks the ball in it and it inadvertently hits him in the back of the head and goes in the goal. In the end of it all, no one's going to give David credit for that, for that goal. They go, that numbskull was busy trying to get all the camera time, is what he was trying to do. But that's really what it looks like to God for so much of what happens. It bounces off of us instead, but still scores a goal somewhere. And then we try to collect the points for it. Because you know what? Even to the point where you do things that really look Christianese, like feeding the poor or clothing the poor, Helping the homeless, 
reaching out to AIDS people. Now, God doesn't say we shouldn't do that. He says you should do that. But you, and you go, well, how can I do that and put me first? That's simple. You do it in front of the camera. You do it for the camera. You do it as Jesus speaks about those, if you remember back in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the religious leaders who fasted and gave and prayed to be seen by people. That's why they did it. So when the praise went up, the hands went up, but it wasn't the hands raised for surrender. It was hands raised up to make sure people, everyone else knew that they were raising their hand. And when the tongues came out, they made sure that their tongue was the loudest. And when the service happened, they made sure that everybody knew. They took the camera crew and it was with the sound of trumpets, every gift that was done. And we've had people like that guy that shows up and he goes with the check or something. I just want you to know. And I'm like, put that thing back in your pocket. You're not going to get any blessing for it anyway. He goes, you can do all of that. And God's, God could look and go, I, why would I credit that? You've already gotten your credit for it. Hey, there's some people that go faithfully to every church service because they're cute people at church. But God's not taking attendance. In the end of it all, all God's really looking for is obedience. But when we obey him, his name is quick on our tongue. The name of Jesus. That's the way that works. So as he started identifying all of these various things, which, by the way, apparently every one of them seems to be lacking from this particular church, which means it seems to be lacking from the contents of the church, which are the people. We finally get to this starting in verse 8 to close this up. We've looked at what it doesn't do. We've looked at what it does do. And he sort of caps it with this statement that it never fails. And that tells me something, by the way. I fail. You fail. And anything that involves mankind will fail. We are the margin of error. That's the problem. But understand, all of my knowledge it's temporary, this stuff on this side of the world. All the science and statistics and movie quotes, all the sports raps and the mistakes and regrets that I own, oh, they're only temporary. And that's what he tells us here in a moment. All of my failures, all of the people who failed me or that I thought have failed me, you need to know it's never been love. And of course, we're aware that God is love, First John 4, 7 and 8. Tell us that. You need to recognize God never fails. Somebody says, I went to this church and it failed me. And it's, it's interesting, of course, how many people will draw a line in the sand and once you run past it, they'll keep drawing lines in the sand until sooner or later they'll say that someone failed them. And, you, and it, get, it gets to be like that. Well, I prayed and my grandmother died anyways. She was 98 one of her legs had been amputated. She had a very difficult time breathing. She was suffering from Alzheimer's. And I prayed, God, let her stay alive another day. But she loved Jesus. And if that woman could speak, she'd smack you upside the head and she'd say, let me go home. Lord, let her not suffer anymore. That's my prayer. Let her not suffer. We had someone that come in that fairly 
a short while ago that had said, you know, I prayed. My grandmother was in a similar situation to that described and said, you know, I just prayed, God, let her not suffer anymore. I'm so tired of her. Would you just heal her completely? And I prayed and God didn't heal her. He killed her. And I said, what did you ask in your prayer? And he says that she wouldn't suffer anymore. And what else? I prayed that she wouldn't have to deal with this problem anymore, these physical infirmities. What else? She would never have to see another person like that cry over her illness. I says, do you realize you got your everything you prayed for? I go, the problem is, how old do you want her to live? That woman right now is not suffering at all. And it's amazing how selfish our prayers can be in a moment like this, but I want you to know love never fails. Well, that guy, he said he just wanted to be friends, but love never fails. Selfishness fails. Selflessness doesn't. Jesus never fails. Now, this word for what it's worth here that sort of starts us on this journey is a word that literally means to be dropped out. Or It's the word ekpipto, and ek means to be out of, by the way. And, and pipto, by the way, the pipto it really, really kind of it means to fall. It means to, to step back. It means to trip. So when we start looking at a word like this, you need to recognize that there are going to be things that are going to trip and fall. There's the idea here. And they're going to fall out. You're going to watch people, and Jesus even warned us about this in regards to the church when he talks about a sower that went to sow some seed. Do you remember that? And the, so, and the seed fell on various soil types. The seed was not a variable. The soil types were, which he'll tell us was the condition of human hearts. And some fell in such a way that it never even took root. You know, you're sharing Jesus with someone and they look at you and say something like, oh, well, I'm an archaeology major. Why in the world would I want to listen to you? You think, why? Because you dig up dead people. You should know about the one that didn't stay dead. Because every one of us is going to stand before him. And then you share with others and the seed does land and it does even seem to take root. But for some, it's a very, very shallow conversion. That's what he tells us. It falls upon rocky soil. It springs right up because it's the only direction it can go. But then persecution comes, and we read, because of the word, and it withers and falls away, bears, no, bears forth no fruit. Now please understand, what does persecution because of the word look like? Where do you stand on homosexuality? Is Jesus really the only way? Do you believe in the literal death and literal resurrection of Jesus? That's the word. Who was Cain's wife? I just like to say, Meshuggah. Meshuggah. And then just to see where they go from there. Like, now that I've answered your question, do you want to give your life to Jesus? They don't know what to do. By the way, the word means crazy, for whatever it's worth. Do you really believe that there was a worldwide flood that water covered the earth? Yeah, I do. The Bible says that I believe it. Do you really believe that God created everything? Yeah. So you don't believe in a Big Bang? Oh, yeah, no, I believe in a Big Bang. Really? It's on the other side, though. Because it tells us the, all of the elements are going to melt with fervent heat, and there's going to be a giant explosion at the end of all of this. You just have it on the wrong side. Well, how long did you think it took? Well, let me ask you. Can you say, Yara Or? Try and see how long it takes you. Those are the words for be light. Because that's what he said, and light was. How long did it take you? I believe it. But you're going to get persecuted for that. And people will ask. 
And of course, they'll think you get you in a corner. And the, the most fun thing is, to be honest, people have so cowered that the moment you actually don't back down, they don't know what to do with you. You're like, you know, the, they're like a dog that chases the car that goes away, but the moment it stops, they just sit and look at themselves and chase their tail because they don't know what to do. And they're like, do you really believe that? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. I do. Do you really believe water covered the earth? Yeah, absolutely. A worldwide flood? Yes, absolutely. You really believe water covered the earth? Sure. How dumb is that? Do you believe in an ice age? Sure. Do you believe ice covered the entire earth? Sure. So you don't believe water covered the entire earth, but you believe that ice covered the entire earth. What's ice made out of? And the only reason I say those kind of things is, is that, to be honest, it's like you, every, I think everybody needs that kind of persecution. A, a little bit to check themselves to see whether or not they're willing to take that stand on God's word. See, if you don't stand on God's word, then what Jesus are you going to believe in? The one you make up? Well, you can't improve upon perfection, the, the perfection that Jesus is in Scripture. So there are going to be those, and they're going to wither and never bear fruit, really, in this. Because it's a very shallow faith. It's a convictionless faith. And then there's a third type, and that's a type, by the way, where it is growing deeper, but the problem is there's already all kinds of other things planted, right? The cares and the worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches. And this, the sad part about it is it, they get strangled. I mean, in the second case, they get fried. And you watch them, man. They're like firecrackers. They shoot up, and they're so excited. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. And it's like, and then they're like gone as quick as they came. Here's the good news, is rocky soil can still gather other seed later and grow deeper. Sometimes that same seed helps break up the rock underneath it. But then you watch those that it's like a slow death because it's being choked. And you watch them. They were so stoked. They were so excited about the Lord. They were so driven. And they were, you know, they were growing and they were getting firm in the word. And things were just marvelous. And then you watch them and the joy leaves. That's usually where it starts. And you notice and you try to tell them. But they look at you like you're speaking some other language. And you're saying, honey, do you know where you're at? Do you know what's going on? I don't even know what's causing this. I don't know, but it looks like you're getting choked. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. And I watch you. It's exciting. And church, you know, it's like your, your heart would skip a beat at the name of Jesus. And his song didn't have to be played well or sung well. You were just happy because somebody was singing about Jesus. And now you want to be quick to criticize everything because it's not, the production quality is not as good or something. <clears throat> How did that happen? It's the cares and the worries of the world. And the deceitfulness of riches. I'm sorry, I, I, need to, I need to work more. I need to do this more. I need to do this more. And I can't really pursue the Lord like I really want to. But, you're not, but when your time is free, you're still not pursuing the Lord. So don't tell me that. And it breaks my heart because I watch so many people get choked like this. And he talks about the, third, the fourth quadrant where the seed does fall in and it bears forth fruit. That's the separates it from the others. It isn't the, the, the landing or the sprouting. It's the bearing forth fruit that is different. Fruitfulness, which is interesting because those of you around on Sundays, you know, that's been the big issue in regards to going into the promised land. It's like the others died in the wilderness, but then there are those that actually do get in and bear forth fruit. And I want to be one of those. But after a while, and the smoke clears, a lot of the people that stood with you fall away. Pastors, priests, high-profile Christian leaders fall away. Now here's the good news. The righteous will fall, but be restored. Even up to seven times, he tells us, but the wicked fall by calamity, they fall with no remedy. 
righteous aren't without tripping. The righteous will never just be able to say, I've fallen and I can't get up. But you need to know, you want to fall? Step out of love. Put you first. The moment you put you first, you are setting yourself up because you, what you're going to be, you're dragging in the old man and you're tripping over him. Hear me on this for a second. This is the way that Paul would tell the Romans. It's, and it perhaps it's a text you may be familiar with. It's from Romans chapter 7. And it's kind of a dooby-dooby-doo, right? Because it's like, what do I do what I don't want to do? I mean, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, mm, that's what I find myself doing. Did you follow that so far? It could be a little trippy, but the idea of it is, there's bad stuff, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm finding myself doing that. There's good stuff I should be doing, but I don't find myself doing that. Now this is, by the way, Paul didn't write Romans when he was a baby Christian. Paul was in ministry. He was writing the Bible while he was struggling with this. Are you aware of that? I I don't know if that encourages you or freaks you out. Or both. Then he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? See, that's what Paul saw when he saw who he was. So there, there was a day. There was a day when David said yes to Jesus. And when David said yes to Jesus, David became two people. He became this. First of all, what God did is he killed the David that was. The selfish, self-driven, self-made, self-first man that had to have self-esteem and self, self, self. Had, you know, a lifetime subscription to the magazine, self. You did self-checkout, self-helped at the pump and did, ran all the self-help classes. He was a self-made man. And that person was laid to rest, nailed to the cross. And when that person was nailed to the cross, David became a brand new creation. But the problem is, that that old person that David was, that dead body, that, <laughs> that dead body that looks just like David, was separated from him. You with me so far? Now, the Romans were really good at coming up with really nasty ways to kill people. They made sure that the more that it tortured people, the better. Because, see, if you kept people in fear especially of your punishment, it was great preventative measures. Now, I'm not encouraging you to crucify people and that kind of thing. It was just quite effective. Well, one of the things they did is that they had an unruly, um, an unruly uh, prisoner. Is they would take a dead body and they would chain him to the living guy. Now, any of you think this is a neat idea? Think, ah, oh, snuggle time. Now, you need to know, you need to know that never in the history of such a punishment did the living body ever win over the dead body. It wasn't like there was ever that he had so much life in him that the life just crawled into the dead body and the dead body got life. See, there's over 300 different bacteria alone that go into a dead body, fest and manifest into a dead body, including things like flesh-eating bacteria like Staphylococcus, which would get strep throat, those kind of things. The only problem is it isn't strep throat, it's strep everything. Right? And so what you get here is sooner or later, this thing, not only, think about what it does first. It's first of all, it's just heavy. Does that make sense? And it's cumbersome. But then it gets stiff, rigor mortis. 
And as it gets stiff, that means it becomes constricting. And now you can't even move like you do before. Does that make sense? I mean, that's just the early signs. And then what would happen is, is that the things, the contagions, those nasty bacteria that were on the dead body start to seep its way through the living body over here till the two of them become one and the dead body wins. Does that make sense? When Paul looked at the life he used to live, this why do I do what I don't want to do, the guy that I used to be, that is, Paul calls it the same thing, this who will separate me from this body of death. And that was this punishment was called this body of death. And he says, thanks be to Jesus Christ. See, what Paul knew, Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul, Bible writing Paul, struggling Paul knew is that only Jesus could break these chains. Are you with me on that? Okay, thanks guys. Listen, this whole idea that love never fails, it never falls. You really want to fall? That's quick, quite and easy. All you have to do is take that body of death that you used to be and try to drag it back on you. You're going to trip all over it all the time. And you, you know, and you can do it. It's really simple because there's so many different things that will call us back into the flesh. And for some of us, to be honest, it's some of our friends. For some of us, it's what we watch or listen to. Hey, that's what we can't pass. You can't say, well, as a blanket statement, don't do this. But the bottom line is, can I say as a blanket statement, don't do anything that puts you back in the flesh because it makes you a horrible person. And my, me too, by the way. We should not be in anything that drags us and makes us nastier people, that makes us pull back to the person we used to be. Hey, so look at, look at my laundry on display for you. If you ever see me hating people, wanting to be alone, and not wanting anything to do with people, you know I'm going back to a place where I shouldn't go. It's a telltale sign. Now, we all have our moments where it's like, boy, I need a moment of silence. I get that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, oh, God, put me on an island and put up a fence. A deserted island with only me and you, you know. That's a different story. And please hear me. That's a bad step into a much worse person that, by the way, praise God, even my family has never met. Praise God for that. And I've actually asked God, please, if, my, if I get near that guy, just kill me. Literally just kill me before I have a chance for them to see that. So they never have to deal with that. And I'm sincere. I'm more than happy to die. I know where I'm going. And then they don't have to deal with it. Now, they'll get me on this. God's like, how about if I just kill that guy anyways, and you live and do the, the, be the person you're called to be? And I'm like, ooh, that sounds like win-win. And what, what Paul is doing in all this, understand, is he's laying out the temporariness of all of the things of this earth, which, by the way, the Corinthian church is chasing after. And then he's showing the eternality of God's love that never fails. That's the whole idea. So these things, by the way, that are even earthly ministries are temporary. That's the problem here. But he says you could do all of these things without love, and you know what? You're going to get nothing out of it. Nothing really from an eternal perspective. So look at what it says. Love never fails. Where there's prophecies, oh, they will fail, by the way. They will step out. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish or evaporate. Oh, beloved, listen to this. This becomes, ironically the diving board for some intellectuals for why nobody should ever speak in tongues again. I love it when, you know, if you've ever had, if you've ever been a parent of a teenager, you know how this works. 
Like you can say, you know, what you did was really wrong. You should not have kicked your sister. You know, you shouldn't have whatever. And whatever the situation is. And like they'll hear, oh, so what you're saying is I should get cookies. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? How did you get that out of, well, because my shoe looks like a cookie. And you know, I mean, it's like amazing. What, and it's like, and, and understand, here's the idea of this. Is that people trying to pull something out of it like that are people with an agenda, with a, unfortunately, dare I say, they're people with an intellectual agenda that aren't even getting the point of actually serving other people. That's the crazy part about this. Because this is the point. He says, look it, prophecies are going to fail. Which is interesting because that's a prophecy too. He says, now, and the other idea of it is there is going to be a day when you'll never need, you'll never hear another prophecy. There's going to be a day when you'll never hear another person speaking in tongues. There will be a day when knowledge will vanish. Did you notice they were all stated in a row here? And some will say, because it will tell us, well, okay, when perfection comes, that's the idea here, when the perfect comes. And what some have said is the perfect is the Scripture. When the Bible in its entirety now in the canon of Scripture has been laid out in the 400s, 500s, now completely agreed upon and so forth. From that point on, <clears throat> there's no need for it. Well, the problem is, well, you're still prophesying. And what knowledge has vanished? When does knowledge vanish? That's kind of a weird thought, isn't it? Knowledge vanish. When do prophecies end? When do tongues cease? Now? Now, understand, scripturally, do you know the one word prophets say in, Bible, in the Bible more than any other? I mean, other than and and the, but I mean as far as message thematically. The word repent. The primary role of a prophet is to call God's people to repentance. Let me ask you, do you think we need prophets today? Oh man, do we ever Oh, that God would send prophets to the church. The problem is, if God sent prophets to the church, they would deal with them. Now, they might not stone them. They would just arrest them or deport them or whatever the case is. But you get the idea. But which one of you wants to be told to repent? Which one of you, you know, wants to be called out? Now, hear me on this. This is what it tells us. Verse 9 says, Because... We know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, because it's incomplete. Our knowledge is incomplete. Our prophecies are incomplete. But when the perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. Do you get that? And then he refers to it as a child. In verse 11, when I was a child, I acted like one. I spoke like one. I understood like one. I thought like one. When I became a man, that stuff needed to be put away. Because, notice again, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now, knowledge will pass away, and yet I will know as I am known? Do you get that? So let's put all that together for a moment. See, I'm a big fan of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. I think that's a fair place to go. In Scripture, by the way, it tells us this, and it's important to note. That in the Gospel of 1 John, and I say that because it is great news, 
It says that there is a day that Jesus is going to come. And when he does come, we will see him as he is, and we shall therefore be like him. There is a day when Jesus comes, and when he does, we will know as we are known. Hmm. That's a good day. I like that day. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66, God says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. There is going to be a day when that which we know will be wiped clean. Now, you might think, wow, but I like what I know. Maybe that freaks you out a bit. But if heaven will be a place where the tears are wiped away and then no more tears, and you could remember any person who said no to Jesus to their death, would it be a place without tears? Especially if you had the heart of Christ by that point? I love the fact that Jesus himself chooses to remember no more our sin. I've heard it said this way. Have you heard this about how we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in Scripture? Have you seen that? Does that confuse any of you? Follow me on this. And it all, it's all in regards to sin, by the way. The moment that I said yes to Jesus, and prayerfully you have, and understand if you haven't, here's the choice. Jesus died on a cross for your sins and mine, and he simply asks for you to receive his gift as Lord and Savior, for which then he would like to redeem you, wash you clean, and give you his innocence, assuming then the lordship of your life. The moment I said yes to Jesus, Jesus saved me from the penalty of sin. You too, by the way. So the moment you said yes to Jesus, the penalty of sin, your punishment has already been eradicated through the cross of Christ. Isn't that good news? So the moment I said, yes, man, it's a done deal. It's paid in full. Jesus tells us, but from the moment that I accepted Christ, God placed within me as Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 and 13 tells us that having believed the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a guarantee of your inheritance and your redemption. From that moment, God begins to save me from the power of sin in my life. Today, sin has less power in my life than it did yesterday. Glory to God. And it certainly is much clearer to say it has less power in my life than it did a year ago or two or three. So every day that I walk and I breathe and I, and I follow Christ, sin's power over me has less dominion. Now, we're told, by the way, we're, the old man's been crucified. Sin no longer should have dominion over you. Now, I wish that the whole body of me and my mind would get the memo, but it seems to be a slow learner, but it's getting there. Save from the very power. But one day, when Jesus comes back, and I see him, and I know him as I am known, see him for who he really is, I will be rescued from the very presence of sin. I'll never see it again. 
And the bottom line is, that's one of the reasons why he has to wipe the mind clean. He has to do like that sort of neuralizer thing for men in black, only cooler, right? Because the idea is, is if I could remember it, then sin's presence would still be there in my memory. Would that make sense? But God's going to wipe it so that I'll never even know sin existed. What a crazy thought. I'll never have to look with regret. I'll never, there's no past to look back at and go, oh man, I wish I could have changed that. You can't change it anyways. And the enemy loves to go and park himself back in your past, you know? You'd like to try to drag him up into the future and show him his future, and that would be a little bit concerning for him. They would rather be in your past. He sets up a summer home there and tries to show you, look at what you did, you'll always be this. And I'm like, you know what? That's actually, thank you for showing me the guy that Jesus killed. That's just not who I am anymore. So listen, here's the whole idea of it. This love is never going to fail. This Jesus love, this agape, this Endless selflessness is never going to end. It's never going to fail you. It's never going to fall away. You're never going to blink and it's going to be gone. If it's gone, it's not that. It was something else. It's that simple. And what's interesting in all of this, he tells us that all of this other stuff in church can be done for the right ways or the wrong ways. This whole prophecy thing or this whole tongues thing, it can be done for the right or the wrong. Right would be love. In other words, that would be, how do I do this to bless you? How do I do this somehow to put you first? Or the wrong way, how do I do this to put me first? I'm going to speak in tongues to put me first so you can think I'm awesome. I'm going to prophesy so you can think I'm awesome. That's the idea here. He says, all this stuff... There is going to be a day when I see Jesus, understand, let me tell you what I'll never be able to do again, evangelize. There'll be nobody to evangelize. There'll be nobody to prophesy to. There'll be nobody to have a Bible study with. Well, why is that? Because the living word will be right in the middle of us, and I'm going to be so on my face before him. I'm sorry, I don't have time for you guys. You could, you could be on your face you know, next to me if you like to, and we can just praise him together. And that will be fine with me. So he goes, look at So all of these other things, this, we, here's the problem. Right now, we get hints of it. We get these beautiful little hints like looking in a mirror dimly. Now understand today, could you imagine trying to explain to somebody 2,000 years ago that we could do today, if we really wanted to see what we look like, we could take a selfie? And then if we really wanted to, we could project it onto a screen so that it actually is like 75 meters tall to say, check out my face. I want to take a good look at my face. I mean, those days, they pounded copper until it got really, really shiny. Gold, if they were really rich, because sometimes that's even roughly transparent. And then they would check to see the reflection in it. But even then, you know, you were kind of like little tan and, you know, and warped. And, you know, it kind of looked a little bit like something from Picasso. And one eye was bigger than the other because the thing wasn't flat or whatever. But that was like what you, and like, this was the best you had. So you were kind of like, well, like. And you know what you do? You look and go, I know I look better than that. I mean, now you look in the mirror, and you, I do at least, and go, oh, that's what I got. I, mean, I, I can't, you know, I can't think, but that, that mirror is really messed up. And he goes, I want to warn you. Do you want to be so proud as to think that you see everything perfectly clear right now? He goes, you know what the simplest truth is? If you cling to Jesus, that's the one thing that, and what God makes clearest, God makes simplest. And we want to go, but I want to understand every prophecy. It's like, but you don't even understand the simple. Why would you want to start with the hard stuff? That's like kind of saying, I don't know how to add, but I really want to go and work on my calculus. Like, you don't even know your numbers yet, Holmes. Please hear me. There is going to be a day we'll never be doing this again. We'll be sitting in the presence of the Lamb. And there will be a day when all of this 
obscurity will be gone. The competition with this world out there and the stuff that we've brought into this relationship with God that makes us look at him the wrong way at times and brings this weird stuff in and our baggage and all of this stuff. So we kind of think God maybe is angry when he's not or he's so frustrated when he's not or whatever. Because if that was me, I would have bailed on this. God, don't bail on me. And God's like, I am not you. And we bring it in and we throw it on him and then we start going, oh, God. And we do this and it's so crazy. And God goes, this is going to end too. It's all temporary. And if we realize that and we can get back to the eternal in this, could you imagine what that would do to us? We'd start to look at each other and go, you know, I'm actually going to spend eternity with you. So let's get to enjoying it now. Let's have eternity practice. Let's praise the Lamb. Let's celebrate the King. And he says, but now there are some things that remain. Okay, so it's sort of like Paul went and he pulled him out of the temporary for a moment, showed him the eternal, and then said, now let's get you back into the temporary and say, now what are you going to do? And understand, that's the way it works. God pulls you up and he says, now let's take a look at the boundless horizon. And once you look at the boundless horizon, let's get to the next thing, which is let's get you back in and say, now what are you going to do to make a difference now that you have that? He says, you know, we've all been there where we understood less. because." But here's the crazy thing. That teenager in between child and adult was a time where you still didn't know much, but you thought you did. And everybody goes through those teen years. Even in church, you watch that. All of a sudden, they're like experts, you know, because they've understood for the first time Gideon or whatever. They've read through the Torah. They've read through the entire Bible in a year, and they don't get most of it, but they're like, don't, you know, don't mess with me. I'm like a Bible expert now. If we were humble, it isn't about what we know. It's about who we know. And boy, that's the beautiful thing. He says, as a child, I thought and I acted like one. I, you know, that would make sense. But as we get older, as we mature, things become a whole lot more clear. And as we become a whole lot more clear, can I just say, it's this way. Now it's a dim mirror. Then it's perfect high def. And you know what we're going to see when we look at that thing clearly? Jesus. That's what it says. We will see him face-to-face. In the end of it all, what's funny is all that religious, you know, stuff, that the, all the stuff that we've done, the complicated things and the politics and all that, I'm not talking about organizing church because we want to do that to reach people and to love people. But what I'm saying is where we complicate it with all this stuff of man, and once we do all of that, in, in the end of it all, it's just going to be Jesus. And he goes, man, what if we did that now? Wouldn't that be great? We would so care for people like we should. So this is how it ends. Then I shall know as I am known. Now abide these. Now these three things remain right now. Faith and hope and love. Those are the things that remain now. But the one that you need to be most aware of, the one that should be the prominent one, is love. Follow me on this as we bring this to a close. Please hear me. Three things that can identify a Christian, and we'll see it throughout Scripture. Your labor of love, your work of faith. We're going to see these things. This endurance of hope. And they, they crop up, and whether that be the Philippian church or the Colossian church or the Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica, you're going to see these things as prominent things. And so the question is, which of these things do you want to be the most known for? Which of these do we want the church to be most known for? And there are churches, by the way, that the, to the, the church of faith. Now, I know churches that have, that the whole thing is about having faith in faith, if that makes sense. You need to have faith in your faith. If you had faith in your faith enough... You can tell these pillars and you can have faith enough, you know, you can have faith in your faith. You can make sure that you'll fill up your bankroll and you'll get the car and the house and the girl or whatever. And we're known as the church of faith. 
We're a church and we're faithful. Man, I tell you what, we trust God with everything. So you know what we did? We just walked over to a plot of ground and we sat down and we just had, we trusted God was going to give it to us. And sometimes God will. Sometimes he won't and you'll get arrested, but sometimes he will. There's a big difference between faith and presumption. Faith says, Jesus, if it's you, command me to step out of water. Presumption says, I'm jumping, catch me. Jesus is like, I'm going to actually let you land on your own once, and then you can ask me next time. So we could be the church of faith. We could be the church of hope. Now, there's all kinds of hope. There's a healthy hope and an unhealthy hope, like there's a healthy faith and an unhealthy faith. A healthy hope looks for the coming of Jesus. An unhealthy hope is like, oh, we're just going to claim the future. You tell God what the future holds. You just convince, you convince God. You present your argument well enough in prayer and then say Jesus' name and he's contractually obligated. So we have, you know, we're full of scripture, so we have hope. We really know what we're doing, so we have hope. We're going to trust God with the future. He's going to come back, and you're all going to be, you're all going to burn. Or love. Now, love isn't just, give me a hug, I love you. Truest love is shown by those that are hardest to like. The greatest degree of love is shown by those that you will receive the least from. That's good. And that becomes the problem. The same way that, can I just say, real submission doesn't happen until you disagree. You can think you're doing awesome and then you disagree and you're like, you know what, I've submitted perfectly until this one moment where I actually disagreed. Understand that's where real submission happens. Whether we submit to our bosses, children submit to the parents. Understand that we could think we're doing really well until disagreement happens and then we like the feathers fly. And in the same way, can I just say, real love doesn't happen to people that are lovely. I mean, we should love them anyways, but I, I think God does that to make it a little easy. But it's the people that are harder, that are less lovely, that God gauges our love by. The least, the last, and the lost. And I look at that and I start to think, you know, well, how am I doing on that? Would I be quicker to avoid what I'm going to go, oh, there you go. I expected that. He says, what if we were those people now? What I want us to do for a couple of minutes is just to grab the people around us and pray. Lord, give me the kind of love that doesn't fail. That puts other people first. That that would be what I would be known for. Not so that I could put me first. But this would be a church where people serve each other for the benefit of the other. That a person who knows that they're quirky and walks in and they're uncomfortable... A person that walks in and they know they're needy and they're afraid that nobody would go near them. But we would be chasing, we'd be beelining for that person just to try to serve them. And the Lord, you're probably aware of this by now, the Lord is never going to give you a time where there's not going to be somebody in your life that's going to challenge you. And you know why? Because he wants you to know we need help with this love thing. And only he can do it. And if you're like, I've been so good loving. And God's like, no, you've been around people you like. I hung out with my friends and we giggled and we laughed and we watched a movie. Man, I loved them all evening. 
God's like, where was the selflessness? What put them first? I want to pray. And then I want to set you guys out. Would you? Would you grab each other? Just go to prayer. Lord, make me people. Make me a person that puts away the childish me first. Isn't that what kids do? Me first. Mine, mine, mine. I want to put that away and I want to grow up. But let's start with this. Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. And certainly next week, Lord, as we start to look at how that plays out in a service with the display of spiritual gifts and how you put it in order. I just pray tonight, Lord, for every one of us that, Lord, and, and as I see, we, that this is where we're supposed to grow. That as we grow from childish things to mature things, we grow more selfless. It becomes less about us and it becomes more about Jesus. And if we're going to love you, Jesus, with everything, other people are going to get served. So, Lord, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters and myself in here. I pray first, Lord, if there be anyone who has yet to say yes to your gift on the cross. Because, Lord, we need that body of death removed from us. And so, Lord, I pray right now, if there be anyone that right now, even right where they're at, they would be able to say, Lord Jesus, look at I am a sinner. I'm not perfect. You know it. I know it. But if you died on the cross for me and rose again, then I, I want to say yes. I receive your gift, your payment for my punishment. And your resurrection to give me new life. So for that I say yes. And then Lord I pray for every person here beyond that. And even the person or people who may have said that now. Lord that you move us now to a place where every step, every breath we take grows us to greater selflessness. Greater concern for others and less concern for ourselves. It's your job to take care of us. So why do we need to step in the way of that? Give us rather than the heart to serve others. To put them first in such a way that they could be brought to you. So, Lord, I pray now that you would just make us such people. And as we pray for each other, Lord, inculcate that now into our hearts, I pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.